We are really glad to have the editors back today. Jerry, this is fantastic having you back here. Uh, can you, Jerry, open us in prayer before we dive into talking more about biblical manhood and womanhood today? Yes, sir. Love to. Father, we are grateful. We are very grateful that uh, you and your perfect design um, created us. And, uh, and Lord, today we're, we're thankful to be alive, but we're even thank more thankful, I think, that we... Um, that you chose us before the beginning of time. And so, Lord, today I pray that we would understand um, the biblical manhood and womanhood um, in the way you, you designed it. We thank you so much for um, clear, clear passages in Scripture um, that show us what, what you've done and, and why you've done it even so that we can bring you glory. And so today, Lord, we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, and that we would be able to um, interpret these uh, passages uh, in the way that's uh, most honoring to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If, if you guys don't mind turning back to Genesis chapter 3, where we were two Sundays ago for Sunday school, as you are turning there, I thought I would kind of give a word of introduction, and then we could discuss this a little bit amongst ourselves here. Uh, Talking about biblical manhood and womanhood it has always been controversial, but especially in the last 50 or 60 years, it's been increasingly controversial since, I guess, the 60s and beyond. And if you kind of pay attention to evangelical history much, we'll talk just for a few minutes about that, more recent history. So when you go back into the 70s and 80s, to take a view other than egalitarianism, which I'll define in a moment was considered by many to be obscene and sexist and, and, and demeaning to women. And the egalitarian position is the argument that uh, men and women are largely interchangeable uh, beyond the obvious fact that women can have children potentially and men cannot, beyond some basic biological differences. There is no real fundamental difference at all between men and women, and that really what appears to be competencies should be what determine role. So if, if someone seems to be gifted in a certain area, they should be able to do that uh, no, matter, no matter what. That's sort of the egalitarian mindset. So in the 70s and 80s, you had a number of people, including uh, John Piper and Wayne Grudem, who got together and wrote, a, they had a collection of essays written in a book called, you'll never guess, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. You didn't see that coming, did you? And that was the name of the book, and it covers all the controversial texts on this issue throughout the Bible, and it's done by, you know, a lot of great New Testament and Old Testament scholars. Well, uh, in the last 20 years, egalitarianism has l largely turned into more of a progressive Christianity movement. I think, I, I think that's fair to say. So, what I mean is this. Can I just be very direct right from the… This is, look, we're just jumping in right away. This is no time to prepare ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, egalitarians would say that uh, the passages that seem to indicate women cannot be elders and pastors of churches uh, do not mean what they seem to mean, that women can be pastors of churches and that men should not be in any sense leading in the home. That view became dominant in the 70s and 80s. And when these individuals stood and, and responded to that, uh, the response was, was not well received by many. And what you see today is many who were egalitarian in the 80s are now uh, LGBT affirming today. And it seems like this sort of slippery slope of once we deny what Scripture says about gender here, we end up denying what it says about gender over here, do you see? And there is an actual kind of organic connection between these things. So many famous egalitarians have come out more uh, affirming of LGBT issues in the last 10 or 15 years. And so now the fault line has shifted, 
It's not really complementarian versus egalitarian. It's now two versions of complementarianism that are now sort of the fault line has developed. And this is broad versus narrow complementarianism. Greg, with no further ado, what, what is broad and narrow complementarianism? Yeah, okay. Um, narrow complementarianism, in a nutshell, simply says that the main places you see any distinction between men and women is in the home, in terms of who's the leader in the home, and in the church. Uh, so they would say, yes, technically women cannot be pastors, husbands are the head of their homes, and that's it. And that's all they say. That's the, the narrowest view. Broad complementarianism sees more um, of differences and distinctions between men and women rooted in God's design and creation. And so it could encompass more than just the narrow view of, um, of in the home and in the church, because this bleeds over into like who can serve in the military, who should be a frontline soldier, um, and stuff like that. So it reaches into other areas. Um, who can teach the Bible in a seminary um, and stuff like that to potential future pastors. Um, and so it reaches into a lot of other areas. Uh, broad complementarians would, would generally say, as far as I can tell, you know, men should be frontline soldiers. Men should teach men, you know, aspiring pastors and all of that because that's just appropriate in light of what the role is. Um, and again, there's, there's probably a whole lot of other areas we could look at, but generally speaking, narrow says, you know, male headship in the home, and that's even limited somewhat, and then only men can be pastors. But the thing is, with most people, when they say pastors, they think only head pastors. Um, they would allow for women to be associate pastors and pastors of other parts of the church as long as they're not a head pastor. And so that's the difference between narrow and broad. Broad would look at the church and say any pastoral role is limited by Scripture to men because that's God's design and that's God's purpose. So what would we want to add to that? Or does that cover it? No, I, that's, that's helpful. So, so t today, one of the things that, that you'll see is things like this. You'll, you'll hear of a, this could be in the Southern Baptist Convention, you'll hear of a woman who will say, listen, I am a complementarian, narrowly defined. But she says, I have gotten permission from the elders of this church, the Southern Baptist Church, for them to give me permission to preach on, say, Mother's Day or whatever it may be. So you might have like a Beth Moore who will preach on a Mother's Day like this past year at a large megachurch in the SBC, and she will preach, uh, for, you know, an expositional sermon or whatever you want to call that exactly, right, there in front of several thousand people in a church on a Sunday. She still claims to be a complementarian. But I'm, I have a very hard time placing what kind of complementarian you claim to be if you are actually preaching to men on a Sunday. That, to me, is obviously restricted in 1 Timothy 2 uh, to men who are qualified for that position. So, so th things like that. I, I would say, comp see if this makes sense. Complementarianism became so mainstream in the last 20 years with like the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel, it's become so mainstream in evangelicalism that you have almost no credibility if you're not complementarian in some sort. And so what I think has happened is because it's become popular and mainstream, what happens to mainstream things? They get watered down. And so I think what, what was a good movement in the 80s and 90s uh, uh, became sort of so popular that everyone wanted to claim that they were a complementarian even if they weren't really in heart. And so they claimed the label even if they weren't really living it out functionally. And so that's why today there's a new division between broad and narrow, and our church is definitely broad complementarian. We, we believe that men and women are equally made in the image of God, but men are men, every cell in our body, and women are women. And so we, we believe that the ramifications are beyond two individual aspects of our lives as men and women, but that they affect us more generally, uh, being that God made us different and yet uh, equal in value before the Lord. I want to say something in light of that too, guys. When you have discussions with people, this issue comes up. Always work hard to define terms. 
uh, because someone can say, I'm a complementarian. Well, now you have to ask, well, what do you mean by that? Uh, because people, you know, because it became so mainstream, so, so large of a movement, everybody's claiming the title. You don't really know what people mean by it anymore unless you like start saying, what do you mean? What do you not mean by that? And what's interesting is the, the roots of the movement, like with Piper, Grudem, R.C. Sproul, all of them, like which was complementarianism, that what we hold here as a church is now actually being ridiculed as being like misogynistic, sexist, patriarchal. Um, so the movement, those who hold to the original, you know, emphasis of, of the complementary movement are now being castigated as the ones who are distorting complementarianism. So it's like people kind of parasitically came in um, and took it, tried to take it over and are now saying, no, we're the real complementarians and you folks who were part of the movement, or at least how it was when it started, y'all are really not. Um, so go for definition of terms, press on that. That's not being nitpicky. That's not, that's not being too, you know, intellectual. That's just making sure you know what people are saying. Because if you're not on the same page on, on terms like this, um, you're going to be using the same terminology, but mean something entirely different by it. Don't, don't fall for stuff that feels bad because they say, and they label themselves with a term. Make sure you know what they mean by the term so that you don't get sucked in with something and affirming something that in reality you don't affirm. Yeah, the, the idea that male headship in the home and uh, pastors being qualified men in the New Testament church and in the church today, the idea, the, the, the mischaracterization is that, that basically that teaching is, creates a culture of abuse for women. That, that's the argument that these people are making. You can see it all over social media all the time. So the argument is if you believe in male headship, male leadership in the home and the church, you are fostering, you're creating a culture of abuse and, and mistreatment of women. And actually, I want to just say as strongly as possible, the exact opposite is actually true. So the broad complementarianism, which we believe is biblical complementarianism, is the teaching that men should care for and lay down their lives for women. Uh, men should have a protective, nurturing, cherishing role in the home and in the church that doesn't make us androgynous, where men, you know, women should protect men as much as men protect women is the more egalitarian perspective. No, no. Complementarianism says men should be all the more eager than anyone to lay down their lives for women and for children, which used to be just sort of what was believed uh, more widely in the culture. But, but today that's considered, no, that, that creates abusive cultures. And I said, no, no, no. The opposite of abuse is a man sacrificially serving his wife like Christ died for the church. That's not abusive leadership. That's godly, self-sacrificing uh, cultivating a, a, an area of, of grace and, and goodness. And that reminds us of a verse we'll look at later, First Peter 3, 7, which makes everybody's hair stand on end. <laughs> but it says, men dwell with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since you also are heirs of the grace of life. That isn't a, a, a cut down to women. It's stating an obvious truth that our culture today wants to act like doesn't exist, which is that generally speaking, men are biologically, physically stronger than their wives. Husbands are generally stronger than their wives. And so what that does is that mere fact could create abuse because the man is stronger. And what does the complementarianism of the Bible say? The man knows he's physically stronger than his wife. And what does it say? Treat her with understanding, knowing that she's the weaker vessel, and show grace to her. And so it's the exact opposite. The man should use his strength to protect and serve and nurture and cherish his wife and children, not to lord it over them or to dominate them in some kind of abusive way. So, so actually, this complementarianism, we think, fights abuse better than any other system. So would we say this kind of... Oh, go ahead, Jerry. Sorry. Go ahead. I want to say this leads into some of what we want to talk about today is just basic confusion on what it means to be male and female. 
Um, but you go ahead. Yeah, I, I like where you guys started last week. I think it'd be good to go. Just if you go all the way back to Genesis 2 and um, this to see that this is a beautiful thing that God did. When he made men and women different, it was by design and it was such, it is such a great thing. And, uh, and I just hope we don't ever forget that, that it is, when we talk about this, we can talk about it with great joy. It's controversial, but it is, it is a beautiful thing. If you go back to 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper, fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them out to see um, to the man to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the Lord gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But to Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man, and he said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So uh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What a great thing. We can go all the way back. And so the culture changes like crazy every six minutes, we can say, no, this, from the way it started, God created men and women different, Greg, you were talking about uh, ones uh, 26 and 27 there, you want to read those? Yeah, um, Genesis 1, 26, 27, and even 28, uh, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. And here's verse 27 is the clearest. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion and so on. Uh, but verse 27, when he says male and female, he created them. I mean, th this male and female existence in the image of God is, is by God's specific creative plan and design. This is how God made it. And so if we want to be who God called us to be in the biological sex that he's made us, then we need to know what does the Bible actually say about male and female? If we get that right, then we posture ourselves, position ourselves to not be led astray when the culture is pushing us to reject what the Bible clearly teaches. And so we're both made in the image of God. We both have a union with Christ. And then after that, we're a lot different. We got those two things that are the same and in a beautiful, beautiful way. Papa? Well, none of this says, I've been listening to you guys and just amazing, but... None of this says that women are inferior. Mm. They, they can't do things. They can't, there are different roles. However, uh, women, uh, who did you go to when you were in school, you guys, back when you were young, and to, to get help with your math? It was the girls. They were more, <laughs> they were more intelligent. They could write better. They had the, they had the answers, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, I was, 
taken back somewhat because I went to my younger brother's, youngest brother's graduation from pilot training. And, you know, I'm sitting there. I brought a crew and, and flew into his graduation. And, of course, I graduated in uh, 71. 18? Uh, yeah. uh, B.C. <laughs> <laughs> B.C. <laughs> you didn't think they had airplanes that early. Uh, uh, I, I, I take exceptions with, with the whole the combat role and that kind of thing, and we can get into Scripture and look where Deborah and Barak, they're, they're, you know, Barak, or however how you say it, uh, you know, that was a clear case where he was abdicating his responsibility, and so he eventually went. But, you know, that was there was an admonition there that he didn't stand up. What was the old thing we taught you in Fight Club, Mark? Reject passivity? accept responsibility, lead courageously, and invest eternally. That's what men are called to do. And uh, when we, re Adam rejected, pass he didn't accept responsibility, reject passivity. He was right there when, mm -hmm. when he was being tempted, but he didn't say, time out, Satan. That's not what God said. He didn't lead. Right. And that's why we're in the mess we're in. Yeah, biblical, that's a great, I, I just came out of college, I was at another, at another church we were at, and I got involved with a Bible study with Fred and some other men. It's a men's Bible study on Tuesday nights called Fight Club. It's a little intimidating. And we go in there, and uh, Fred and these other guys are just presenting to us those four things, uh, accept reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, and invest eternally. Those four truths got hammered into my mind, and I realized that I was far from what those four things called me to be as a godly man, and it was a turning point in my life when I got involved in that. I mean, for, for sure, that was a massive turning point in my early 20s, getting confronted by what God calls men to be, and it's not passive and lazy. It is being humble leaders and servants and rejecting that kind of passive uh, way of looking at things. So, as, as we look at th this week, and remember, we're not meeting next Sunday for Easter, this Sunday and two weeks from now, we plan to walk through five things that we, we got this outline from Kevin DeYoung. It's A, B, C, D, E in reverse order, just to make it a little difficult. A, B, C, D, E. <clears throat> and these are five ways in which men and women are different. We've already hit on a few of these. But number A, or, uh, A letter A, not number A. Letter A is appearance. B is body. C is character. Uh, number four is demeanor. And number five is eager posture. He said he had to cheat on that one a little bit, but I'm like, hey, I can't come up with an outline to save my life, so that was great. So appearance, body, character, demeanor, eager posture in reverse order. So today we're going we're gonna to spend a little bit more time here on this first one, eager posture, uh, as one of our, uh, our first ones to really talk about. And um, yeah, so Jerry, you want to pick up here on, on the eager posture? Well, I, I would like to say... From what Greg was talking about there where man, or maybe it was Papa, that he immediately blows it. Like you go right from <laughs> chapter 2 to uh, 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and right there there should have been some big warning signs, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to the husband who was right with her. He was right there in such a maddening thought. He could have, he should have, he should have stopped the whole process and said, wait one second, right, where is out. my hoe? I am going after that snake, and let's quit listening to talking snakes anyway. 
<laughs> this is, there's the worst smell of rat here. But he went completely passive against what Papa's saying to reject passivity. So please turn to Romans 5 because what we see then is that when it comes, and I, I love that uh, DeYoung took us here, Romans chapter 5, clearly we see that the man was to be the leader, didn't do a very good job of that like we see right there, and um, did the woman sin? Yes, no doubt about that, ate the fruit. Was the man responsible for her sin? Absolutely. Could you, could, uh, Mark, you want to read 12 to 21? This is just too good not to, to see how the Lord determines the, the, the blame there. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin, was, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift, free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of, by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass... Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have a responsibility. You know, you read that, and Adam did, didn't do a good job. We have a responsibility in our homes. Uh, you know, I think, Papa, you've said it, boys protect girls. Vic says that. Uh, you know, you, you kind of see that right here, that our eager posture should be that men lead and that, and that women help. Just an example. So with, compliment, with this complementarianism, on a playground when third graders are playing, if a boy hits another boy, that's bad and that should be dealt with. If a boy hits a girl, that's worse. Only complementarians can say that. Egalitarians have to say it's completely equal. A boy hitting a boy is the same as a boy hitting a girl. But don't we just know that's wrong? Mm -hmm. I mean, I hope deep within your conscience, you just know a boy hitting a boy is bad. It's a sin. A boy attacking or hitting a girl is actually worse because God has called men to use their strength to protect, uh, especially in their home, their wives and children, but women more generally. And the idea of a man using his strength to hurt a woman is actually worse than a man wrongly hurting another man, even though they're both wrong. So this is, again, complementarianism prevents abuse. It doesn't create abuse, rightly, biblically understood. Sorry, I cut, I cut off. No, no. It's good. Greg? I mean, amen, everything you guys are saying. <laughs> um, wow, yeah. Um, thinking of Romans 5, you know, drawing uh, further in what you said, Jerry, you know, men are the leaders. The fact that Adam and Eve both were sinning in the garden 
but the responsibility is laid at the feet of Adam. Adam. Um, I mean, we fell into sin, sin came into the world, death is in the world, and Adam was the second one who sinned. But that shows, just by the way Paul's talking about it, that God created men to be the head and have that responsibility for leadership. Um, And so it's built into who we are, um, that, that that's how it's supposed to be. And to go against this is to actually go against nature. It is to be unnatural to overthrow or change the design God has made. Um, and we live in a society today that is all about rejecting nature. What is natural, what is biological, what is, the, what is wired into our, our whole mental, emotional, spiritual DNA, which is natural, our culture is rejecting in every possible way. And that's infecting the church as well, which is why we even have to talk about broad versus narrow complementarianism is because some people are having a hard time with nature itself the way God made it. And so again, um, don't be sucked into that. Uh, There can be a lot of persuasive arguments, emotional arguments, but if it goes against nature, it's going against God. It doesn't matter what people say, how they feel, we don't want to go against God and what He made. And in Ephesians 5, this is critical, Paul looks back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and says that marriage, all marriages between a man and a woman, were a, were a mystery. That was a hidden truth pointing forward to something revealed later, which was Christ and the church. So it's not just that we, you know, marriage isn't just something people made up and that can be, therefore be changed however we want. Marriage is meant to reflect Christ as the loving head of His church who suffers and dies and takes responsibility for us, and the wife, the bride of Christ, who joyfully follows His leadership, submitting to Him and supporting His leadership and, and, and obeying Him, even in what He asks us to do. And so, th- that picture is what marriage is supposed to reflect. Uh, not that everything is exactly the same. Uh, husbands sin. Christ does not. There are big differences here. But we are fallibly supposed to show those two things in the way that we, uh, we love uh, each other and the way that we, the, the two roles are lived out uh, before the watching world. So you think we could, we could say then that if we, and this is, this is how profound the connection is between the male-female issue and the gospel. If we get male-female wrong, we're going to get yeah. the gospel wrong. We're going to misrepresent the gospel. Yeah, and we're going to misrepresent Christ and the church. We're going to get, uh, it, it's amazing how something, it seems so simple, but it's connected to everything. And if we get male and female wrong, then we've already charted ourselves on a trajectory that is away from Christ, that is away from God's pattern, away from God's plan. And here's the thing, you've heard this before. If you're um, building a house um, and the foundation, you know, has to be level. um, And if, you know, if you think about if a foundation is, is off just a little bit. If it, if, it, if it angles just a little bit, or think of a big building, at first you're not going to notice it so much. The taller that building gets, though, the more you're going to see it leaning to the point that the, the more you keep building on that off foundation, eventually it's going to fall and it's going to do a lot of damage. Same thing like um, if you've got two people walking together um, and it looks like at first that they're walking the exact same direction. If one of them alters just a little over time, you're going to find that person is far away from the original path that they're supposed to be on. And so it matters, the male-female thing, for it connects to every other part of the gospel of Christ and the church um, and of the Christian life. So we, we have to get this right. That is really good stuff because no wonder then Satan would attack that, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Well, it's and, foundational, like you said, mm-hmm. the foundation. 
Yeah. Yeah, Satan's first attack is to undermine the leadership of Adam in the role. He goes to Eve, bypassing Adam, and speaks to her and puts her in the position of leading the relationship. That was his first act in history, was to overturn gender roles. Uh, That that should make us think as Christians, Satan's number, his first activity that we know of in the entire Bible, other than the fall of his, his own fall, is he hasn't changed the undermining. Tactics. No. Tactics are still the same maybe today. Yes. And let me just tell a quick story. This story always gets, it's always kind of funny to think about. So John Piper was, you know, pastoring for 33 years at Bethlehem Baptist Church. He had a couple come to him for marriage counseling. This is back probably in the 80s, late 80s or 90s. Here, here's, the, here's what was going on with the couple. The husband, uh, the, the wife had a college degree in English literature, was very intelligent, well-read, all those things. The husband had not, had finished eighth grade. And that was it. He had no high school uh, diploma, no high school education. The husband could barely read. He was barely literate. And he felt, you know, way behind his wife. And frankly, he was way behind his wife. He would come home at night after work, go in the basement, according to Piper, and smoke cigars and watch TV by himself in the basement. That's what he did. And the wife was upstairs with all the kids doing everything by herself. And so eventually they come to marriage counseling and the wife is just at at her end, like just I don't know what to do. He will not lead spiritually or in any way at the home. And so Piper looks at this guy and says, listen, I understand you, you barely finished eighth grade. I, I get it. Here's what I want to ask you to do to be the head of your home. Doesn't mean you're smarter than your wife. Doesn't mean you're better educated than your wife. You're obviously neither of those things, okay? I don't know if he said that, but that was clear. And so he goes, here's what, can you do this? Can you go home tonight and can you say to the kids right before dinner or whenever in the evening, say, kids, let's go in the living room. We're going to have devotions. Can you say that? The guy's like, okay, yeah, I can pull that off. Okay, how about this? You can't even read very well. Just pick up the Bible. You got a family Bible. Pick up the Bible. Open the Bible to you know, some chapter. Hand the Bible to your wife and say, mom's going to read Genesis chapter 3 or whatever for devotions. So mom reads because she's literate. <laughs> she reads Genesis 3. And then he asks the kids, you know, is there anything we can learn from this passage? And they talk about it. And then he asks his wife or the, one of the kids to pray. And they pray. He says, can you do that? And the guy said, oh, well, of course. He goes home, he starts doing that thing. They come back and see Piper six months later. The wife is glowing with joy. And she said, he's, he's finally leading. He's leading our home. So it's, this is not about being more intelligent. This is not about, your, your wife may be way higher IQ than you. She may know the Bible way better than you. All those things could be true. Doesn't get rid of male headship. It means taking the initiative to lead. Doesn't mean you're smarter. It means you take the initiative to lead. And a godly wife will love it. She will love it when the husband says, let's have devotions. Let's read our Bible. Let's pray about that. Let's do this. Let's do that. The wife is going to thrive in that environment. And again, this is not about who's better or more competent in something. The issue is, what has God called you to as a man? What has God called you to as a woman? And how does that flesh itself out in a marriage, in a home, or as a single people as well? How do those things look in, in everyday life? And we blow it with passivity oh, often. Yeah. And that's why I, Kevin DeYoung said that this is probably more about man standing up than about women sitting down. I like that quote. Yeah, I did too. The exhortation is not for women to sit down, but for men to stand up. Yeah, so that's, that's on us when, or it's on the men when, when we're passive. You know, I, I was, Jerry and Mark both can identify with this. I thought in this eager posture section, I thought about Westminster and the times when we had been blessed to be in, in your combined classes. And, you know, it was the sixth graders that had the eager posture. <laughs> It was, the, it was the seniors who were the sl- was, was slouch over mm-hmm. in the corner with their phone. With their phone. 
But the, but the sixth graders, they had the hands, hands up. up. They wanted to ask the questions. They were eager. They were involved. And we need to be that way as, as men, eager. If we can, so eager posture, just to summarize that, we're about to move on to D, which is demeanor. While we're doing that, can you turn to 1 Thessalonians 2, just to get there ahead of time? So eager posture, just again, the eager posture of a man should be to humbly lead and bear the burden of responsibility, take the initiative, reject passivity, lead courageously, invest eternally. I left one out. What, except responsibility. Except responsibility. Except responsibility. So you, th- that should be the, the eager posture of a man. And the eager posture of a woman should be uh, gra- graciousness, a demeanor of gentleness. The first, Tim- uh, first Timothy 2, which we didn't read, we'll, we can get to that later. Uh, not despising the leadership of godly men. Number two, demeanor. This was a fascinating passage for me because it's not one I had thought much about. First Thessalonians 2. Uh, Greg, can you read verses 7 through 8 and then 11 through 12? Yeah. All right, verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. In verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children... We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Wow. Do you all see the two things here? So again, first of all, Paul is a man. Secondly, Paul's a single man. And he's talking here about gender roles and something interesting. He applies a male and female analogy for himself. Now, this is not androgyny, okay? We're not jumping there. But here's what Paul is showing us about demeanor. Look, look again at verse 7. He says, we, including himself, were gentle among you like a nursing what? Mother. Mother, taking care of her own children, being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our own lives as, our, as well, since you have become very dear to us. You see, Paul is saying the, the demeanor of a godly woman will take on some of those characteristics, nurturing, caring, gracious, sharing her life with others, being affectionately desirous of others. Those are more, that's a more typical demeanor of a godly feminine or a godly woman, a godly feminine demeanor. And then Paul mentions the godly masculine demeanor, the fatherly demeanor. Which verse was that? 11. 11. 11. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, do you see the masculine fatherly side? It's exhorting. It's encouraging. There's, a, there's a kind of a leadership quality, an exhorting quality. It's a more direct, more in-your-face exhorting, encouraging. This is what, it, it's a charge. You need to do this. You need to live this way. So you have those two demeanors there. So thoughts on those two passages? You know, God often uses anthropomorphic terms, putting in human uh, characteristics to describe himself. I'm, I'm, I looked at, this is, I love this verse, as one who, this is Isaiah 66, 13. As one who his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Then in, then in Matthew uh, 23, 37, this is Jesus now, certainly a very manly man says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not listen. So, God is expressing himself, and just like Paul, as a mother or as a father. 
And in many places, God says, I'm, I'm God and there is no other. Uh, I'm, I'm father. But he doesn't mind saying, I'm a mother when it needs to be. I, great illustration from Piper. When uh, his father, you may not know this, uh, growing up in South Carolina, his father was gone two-thirds of the year as an evangelist. He said his mother did everything. She taught him how to paint. She taught him how to mow the lawn. She taught him math. She taught him, you know, how to grow things, how to plant seed in the yard. And, and he said, I wouldn't have made it if, if my mother hadn't been there for me because my father, but he said, well, my father came home, no question about who, who was in charge. My father immediately sat down, led us in devotions, immediately took us to church, immediately began to teach us what he had discovered in the word while he was on the road. So it's not that you can't do those things. It's just that depending on the role and the time, and, the, and, and we have examples in Scripture here. Yeah, and so, so just real quick, godly men should always have an appropriate gentleness in their character. And godly women should have an appropriate strength. Proverbs 31, she has strong hands. She works with strong hands. She, she laughs at the days to come. So th th there should definitely be that kind of, there's, there's a kind of a, uh, with their demeanor, there's a kind of a, an overlap there. But godly manhood should, should gravitate in a slightly different direction for its home base, if I can say it that way. And godly uh, femininity should gravitate in a slightly different direction. Do you see there? So you've got overlapping demeanors. Sometimes the man is called to be very gracious and gentle. Sometimes the woman very strong and exhorting. But their home base is going to be in a slightly different location based on manhood and, and womanhood. That's good. Yeah, that's, that's great. And it's hard to, uh, there's that balance there where it's, it's hard to just say, you can't just, I, I would like it to be more black and white than that. For to say women are just supposed to this, 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 and this, and men are supposed to be this, 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 and this. But there is a little bit of overlap there, depending on, like we were talking with, with Piper's when his dad's gone, mom's got to do some, some extra things there. And I know we talk about it a lot, but can we just spend a moment in Ephesians 5? Just because this is so central, to not talk about it directly would be, would be wrong today, I feel like. So just turn to Ephesians 5, just so we can get this central passage on marriage in front of our eyes. Greg, can you read just the whole 22 to 33 of Ephesians sure. 5? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, do you even see on that last verse the different demeanors? Paul does not say the husband should love their wives and the wives should love their husbands. 
Of course that's true, but that's not what he says because the demeanors are different. Husbands should be especially warned that they not fail to love their wives, which is about their affection for their wives, their love for their wives, and wives should respect their husbands. Do you see there's a, di- a slightly different, of course, does that mean husbands should disrespect their wives? No. Does that mean wives should not love their husbands? No. But do you see the gravitation is slightly different? For husbands, the, the main urgency is that you not fail to love and lead your wives well, graciously and humbly. Wives need to be extra careful that they not disrespect their husbands, that they show great respect for them in their words, in their, you know, the way that their expressions on their face and things like that, that they can disrespect their husbands or not. And so, Paul puts the emphasis differently for the two genders, the two sexes there, even though, of course, they're both called to do similar things in in some regards. So, what are some differences here between the headship and submission in this passage? Um, well, I want to make a comment on yeah. um, the loving and respecting. I think it was Doug Wilson I heard say this, um, and I'm going to paraphrase. I'm not going to get it exact, but he said something to the effect, Paul's command in verse 33 of Ephesians 5 is reflective of our own weaknesses after the fall. That's in good. light of what we talked about, how sin makes men passive, women want to, you know, take the lead. Husbands you know, what we're weak in is loving the way we should. And so that's why Paul tells husbands to love. Wives, because of sin, want to not respect their husbands, but, you know, take over as God says in Genesis 3. And so that's why he commands wives to respect their husbands. Because Paul understands our, our inherent weaknesses because of sin, men to be harsh um, or passive, so they need to love in the way Paul says, and wives... Um, not respecting their husband's leadership. Um, and so that's why he says that. I just thought that was really Very interesting good. that corresponds to um, how sin impacts each one of us. Jerry? I just love that, that that's our example is the Lord Jesus. That's that we're going to love like Christ loves the church. So that is a, you know, that's just so perfect in the way he went about it. We might say, well, I would die for my wife. And, uh, and I think we would do that, but you know, someone's commented, but are we living for her? Are we every day, day in and day out, loving, sacrificially leading like, like Christ did? Uh, and so we can never, I think sometimes as men, we're just overly arrogant. And so we kind of think, well, I'm really doing a pretty good job now. Now that I think about it, I'm quite something as a husband. And I think we, when we think about the example uh, or standard and to say, as Christ loves the church, how forgiving is Christ of the church, right? How many times have we wronged him and he forgives completely? He's wiped our sins away as far as the east is from the west. So I know Mark and I have talked about how when there's a, a, uh, a dispute, you know, and we say, well, I think my wife's 80% at fault and I'm 20% at fault. We just use the 60% rule. Add whatever you think, men, Add whatever. If you feel like you're 15% at fault, just add 60. <laughs> and then you're probably got it a lot more accurate. And so I think that that's just our tendency. When we see this, we have to remember our standard is the Lord Jesus. So, so leadership means, and I mean, I've failed here. Leadership means when there's, when there's friction in the relationship with Kelly and I, 
I need to take the initiative to try to reconcile. I need to move forward. I need to confess sin. I need to, and I, have I failed at that? Yes, of course I have. But the, the idea of leadership here isn't about thumping your chest, you know, I'm the man. Or, no, 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 no. It's humbling yourself, getting down and saying, I am so sorry. That was wrong. That was a harsh word. Please forgive me. Like, that's, that's the kind of initiative. So you see here real quick, and we're almost out of time. In verse 25, husbands are called to lead in love. In verse 26, they're called to lead in the word washing their wives in the water of the word. <clears throat> Number 27, they're called to lead in sanctification, so she can be presented without spot or wrinkle or any blemish, holy. Uh, number in uh, 28 and 29, he's supposed to lead in nourishing and cherishing his wife. Nourishing means protection and provision, uh, cherishing her, loving her, uh, esteeming her, <clears throat> and ultimately reflecting Christ. So th those are some of the, the basic things of what that should look like. The chief repenter. We should be, the men should be the chief repenter of their home and set that as a, a standard for our wives and our children that they would repent like, like, we, like we do. Papa, any final words? I liked uh, Greg's, uh, on, on verse 33 there, uh, Doug's definition of the undoing of the curse. Mm -hmm. Uh, however, each, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That redeems that passage. That reconciles mm. one to the other. I like that. That's good. Would you pray for us, Jerry? Yes. Father, we're so thankful um, that you have given us clear guidelines in Scripture, um, laid it out so clearly for us. We pray that we would be um, quicker to obey, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word today, but we would be doers as uh, well. We pray, Lord, that you would use uh, Mark in the upcoming service, uh, Ian, as he leads in worship, the time of confession, that uh, we would um, uh, be quick to, to listen and to apply these things to our hearts and our lives for your glory. And we thank you for this time that you've given us uh, together, and especially for your word, um, which is so powerfully works in us continue to do surgery on our hearts uh, through these tremendous passages in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So remember, next Sunday, Easter, we do not have Sunday school. The week after, Lord willing, we will talk one more week about differences between men and women. And then after that, the plan is we want to address, and we don't know the exact week, but we want to address, uh, spend a good chunk of time talking about singleness. Uh, what is a life of Christian singleness supposed to look like? Number two, we want to talk about dating and engagement. Then we want to talk about marriage uh, in more of a kind of a Kind of like I think of it as a premarriage counseling session. We'll talk about it more like that. And then we want to get to some more hot button issues like uh, some, some questions in our culture about human sexuality. We want to get to at the end of that as well. So we've got a lot still to talk about. And thank you all for, for being here.